Welcome to the Environment Journal podcast, which is brought to you in association with Vortex IoT, a market leader in hyperlocal air quality monitoring and innovative clean tech solutions for smart cities. For further information, visit www.vortexiot.com. Hello, my name is Stephen Sorrell and I'm an author, commentator and advisor on climate change, low carbon and renewable energy. Every month I will be speaking to some of the key figures in sustainability and asking them about the work they are doing, the beliefs they have on climate change and global warming and their visions for the future. In this episode, I'll be talking to Rebecca Willis, who is a professor from Lancaster University, specialising in politics and democracy. Rebecca has written a new book entitled Too Hot to Handle, The Democratic Challenge of Climate Change, which explores a central dilemma of the climate crisis. Namely, she asks, science demands urgency, politics turns the other cheek. Is it therefore possible to hope for a democratic solution to climate change? Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you. Um, and you, you've brought out a couple of concepts, if you like, that help you characterise how we've addressed climate change in the past or, or are up, up until the present time. And one of those is this, what you call the feel-good fallacy. Tell, tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so, I mean, this is a classic political trick, isn't it? The, the idea is that you need to be seen to be doing something about climate change. And so you do something which is really positive and you know an obvious solution so that might be promoting renewable energy or you know increasing investment in cycling infrastructure or something like that and and that's great those things really need to happen but the the trouble is that we're not going to get the emissions reductions we need just by doing more good stuff we actually yes. have to tackle the root of the problem which is digging fossil fuels out of the ground and burning them as well as land use change so for uh, you know as well as all the good stuff we need to be much more upfront about um stopping the bad stuff so you know for every time that a company makes a big announcement about its investment in renewables i want to ask is there an equivalent or ideally much greater disinvestment in fossil fuels. Yes. You know, yes. that is the question to ask Shell and BP. Yeah, and yeah. the answer at the moment is no. <laughs> Similarly, at a country level. I specifically want to come back to that because I, I have some, some points I wanted to ask you about that. Um, but of course, this isn't new in local government. I work principally in the local government sphere. And it's not new there either. Um, uh, uh, for a long time now, um, we've had what we call the sort of wicked issues, if you like, the issues that just don't go away, like fuel poverty as a good example, where they've thrown money at it, they've tried really hard to do something about it, but it hasn't, hasn't really worked. And, and I suppose it's the same point, isn't it? It's about actually addressing the really hard bits, not doing the low, low-hanging fruit, the easy bits, um, and, and getting to the real, the, the real root of it. That, um, and I suppose we all have frustration in relation to that, to be quite honest. Anyone who works in the industry would, would, would share that frustration. 
But you say, I mean, just to go back to what you're saying about, you know, local authorities have tried really hard on issues like fuel poverty. I, I don't dispute that. And when you mm. see, you know, local authorities like Kirk Lees, for example, who've long been real leaders in this area, it's brilliant yes. to see. But actually, um, we haven't tried really hard, have we? Kirk Lees has done, or those authorities have done all they can with the resources they have. But we know, and it's been proved time and time again, that if you actually prioritised investment in energy efficiency and there was a clear line of policy from national all the way down to local and you freed up the funding and so on, it's not a difficult problem to crack. And so the trouble with the trouble is that, you know, announcing schemes and, you know, throwing amounts of money into the air and, you know, putting out those press releases saying you're doing what you can on fuel poverty is great. But does it actually mask the real problem? Should, you know, should should those local authorities not instead be kicking up a hell of a fuss that they're not properly supported to do this job? Yes, no, I do appreciate that. Over the whole of local government, we haven't done as much as we should have done in relation to it. But I also agree with your point that it it comes from leadership, from national policy, from allocation of resources and so on. And and surely COVID's shown that, hasn't it, in terms of the the amount of money and effort and so on that's been poured into it um, because it's an immediate crisis. And indeed, climate change is a deeper, longer term, even more important crisis than COVID itself is. So no, I, I do I hear what you say in relation to that. I do I do understand your point there. What about stealth strategies? That's another concept that you you talk about. And I recognize my own experience in that too, I think it's fair to say. Tell us about that one. Yeah, so it's another it's another um classic politician strategy. This comes about because, I mean, all my research with politicians shows that they do understand there's a climate problem. They might not understand the extent of it they probably don't have the sleepless nights about the horrors of it that 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 I have or that scientists have if you've really delved into climate impacts but they do understand there's a problem there to address but they really worry that if they are sort of too strident or speak out too much on climate that's actually going to um, impact their reputation with their colleagues as well as with voters they don't have the confidence that there's enough public support for, um, for, for for climate action. And so they try and do stuff that you can get done without people noticing. So this is what yes. I mean by a stealth strategy. So they try and prioritise, you know, decarbonising the electricity grid. I think it's no, it's, it's no coincidence that we've made such progress in offshore wind, which is, yes. you know, often literally out of sight compared to onshore wind. Yes. Um, you know, we focused on decarbonisation of industry and those sort of efficiency measures. And, and the hope is that you can do those things without people noticing. Now, you know, you some measures you can do without people noticing. But if you look at the changes ahead in terms of decarbonisation of transport, in terms of um, electrification of home heating, all that kind of thing, Um, definitely any measures on aviation, diet and so on. You can't do that without people noticing. They're going to notice. And the, the job of government is to create a really positive case for action and to speak out on on climate to to make the case for why it needs doing and how we can do it in ways which actually improve people's lives so very very different political strategy 
But do you think that's happening now? Because I suppose when I read those comments, I was thinking, absolutely recognise those. But the last sort of 12, 18 months, uh, as we'll come on to when we talk about the public and public opinion and so on, it seems to me that is changing with the politicians. Do you not think so or not changing fast enough? Yeah, so it's definitely changed in the past two years and it's changed more quickly than... I would ever have imagined. Yes, it's I agree. quite remarkable to see how much attention there is on climate in the media and in political life compared to, say, three years ago. Well, and the so, general election, the last election, is yes, a good example. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So um, I think that there's an acknowledgement of the problem and the urgency like never before. I still think there's real reluctance to make a positive case for the policies that we need. And there's still an over-reliance on looking for the next magical technology over the horizon. So you see that in, you know, Boris Johnson's speeches where he bigs up offshore wind, but he also starts talking about nuclear fusion. Yes. (laughs) Um, Yes. You know, and and it is still all about that, that, that big tech stuff. And, I mean, I think he's missing a trick because there's, I mean... We might go on to talk about this, but I was part of Climate Assembly UK last year, which was an incredible experiment. And when we talked to people, and these were, you know, representative of the country as a whole, when we talked to people, they could see those advantages of um, decarbonisation at a local level of, you know, they could see the health benefits of um, local decarbonised transport strategies. They could see the attractions of different approaches to food and diet and farming and so on. So I think it's there for the taking. It needs it needs political skill to craft those messages yes. in the right way, but it, yes. it, it's it's perfectly possible. So, d- does Boris really believe in this? Do you think, or has he has he dropped on this as opportunistic? Do you think, seeing that maybe this might be the way the wind's blowing? I mean, I don't have an inside track on our prime minister at all. Um, my my observations from the outside are that I I, I think he he. He's he's bought into the need to do this. I, I mean, agree. he's 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 repeatedly stressed his support for the net zero target. He did that yes. on the streets, on the on the steps of Downing Street when the he morning did. that he was elected. That's right. So you know that that came from him. It wasn't a speech mm-hmm. put in front of him. I think that he he te- you know he falls back on some tried and tested lines about climate, doesn't he? Like oh, it's no longer the preserve of lentil eating sandal wearers and that kind of thing. He he falls into this kind of cultural uh, stereotyping around uh, around climate, which I find really irritating. But I, I think it's also a sign that he he hasn't, like I was saying earlier, he hasn't properly sat down with his strategists. No, you know I'm reading Obama's. I'm a political nerd. I'm reading Obama's autobiography at the moment and you know one you 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 hear about how he sits down with his strategists and really thinks through how he's going to handle a certain issue and I, I I'm not sure that those conversations are happening on climate I mean I'd love to be proved wrong and if anyone's listening who does have an inside track please tell me <laughs> and invite me along this podcast has been brought to you by environmentjournal.online and airqualitynews.com. 
Environment Journal and Air Quality News deliver features, opinion and daily breaking news across many sectors, including sustainability, energy, waste, net zero, climate change, air quality, housing and transport. Last month, more than 170,000 people accessed its content online, viewing over 210,000 pages on the websites. To stay fully informed with all the latest developments, you can sign up for the free newsletters on both environmentjournal.online and airqualitynews.com. And if you want to comment on this podcast or would like to contribute to future episodes, then do get in touch via hello at environmentjournal.online. Let's move on to the climate assemblies and you've mentioned these already and obviously they're, they're an important thing. Now, I, I suppose my point on this is that um, if, if people turn up with an open mind, I certainly agree with you that they can be persuaded on climate change. When they listen to facts and data and people who know what they're talking about, they can definitely be persuaded. But what Trumpism surely showed us in the USA is you can ignore facts you can ignore experts, you, you can ignore everybody, frankly. Uh, anything you don't like, you can say is fake news and so on. So how do you how do you deal with people who turn up to the National Climate Assembly or, or indeed, uh, like the local one you had in, in uh, Lancaster, uh, Citizens' Assembly, who don't have an open mind and who aren't going to listen to anything that's said, who've made up their mind in advance? How do you deal with that? Well, I, 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 to be honest, I don't think anyone has an open mind and I don't think we should expect them to. So I, I think actually, if you don't mind me saying this, I think your language of persuasion is wrong. I think none of us are empty vessels, are we? I mean, you know, I mean, God knows I have a lot of pre-existing opinions, as I'm sure you do, as we all yes. do. That's that's yes. as to be expected. And that's actually the good thing about these processes. So, you know, what you try and do in the, in the climate assembly or in the local citizens juries there have been is not try and persuade, but just try and lay out the evidence for people. Enlighten them then, is that a better word? No. <laughs> I'm oh gonna... dear, I'm digging a hole here, aren't I? If you're in a hole, Steve, stop digging. Give them evidence. I mean, I suppose the legal process is an interesting. Yes. So you can have persuasion, and where so you give evidence on on you know uh, uh, you give factual information about the science, for example. Yes. And you give factual information on the levels of carbon reduction that are needed um, by law in our case. Yes. In terms of how we get there, then you can give you can, and we did this in climate assembly a lot. We had advocates who yes. gave differing views on how we should achieve our outcomes. On options, yeah. And options, yeah. And so they were trying to persuade the citizens one way or another, but the whole business was not an exercise in persuasion at all. It was an exercise in deliberation, and that's the word I would I would use. I mean, you asked, I think what you're asking is you know, what do you do with people who sort of go through a process like that and still deny the science on climate change? And we did have people who, um, you know, whose views didn't change, uh, you know, whose views, even when they were factually incorrect on climate change, yes. didn't change during the process. But they're actually really helpful people to have in the room uh, because they question all the time and they they stop kind of groupthink emerging. and also you know what we actually said to those people is that you know it, it by we are getting to zero carbon by law that is our law and so if these changes are going to be made even if you don't agree with the premise of them 
we need to be able to build a system that you can at least build a strategy that you can at least live with. Yes. And, and, and so actually going through that thought process is, is really helpful. And we're also talking about vanishingly small numbers there. Um, you know, the, the, the proportion of the population who are not at all concerned about climate change in this country, admittedly, not in the US, is pretty low. Well, yes, the, the, the Mori tracker that's published, whatever it is, monthly or quarterly, it, it does does actually show that, doesn't it, in terms, yeah. of, uh, in yeah. terms of people. Um, it's higher amongst politicians than it is the general public. Yes. Now, you say we, we do not need less democracy, but more democracy. Um, I'll just quote you. It is both morally wrong and logically flawed to bypass democracy, impose solutions and shut down debate. So ultimately... Um, people will will bring us through this and you think that if we if we carry on down the participative type route then essentially that w- is it your belief that that will ballast that will make government policy more robust will move the government towards the clearer vision and policy framework that you're looking for what sort of time scale do you think you'd put on that <laughs> um i mean let me come to a time scale in the in, in, in a moment but yeah, I completely think that we need more democracy because, you know, if you actually sit down with anyone and say, are you voting for a three degree world? You talk them through what three degrees of warming looks like for, for them, themselves and their family, let alone the rest of the world. No one's voting for that stuff. I say no one. You know, there might be a few kind of <laughs> Um, real doom hungry people who have yes. sort of, uh, you know, real contrarian reasons for voting for climate crisis. But yeah. generally speaking, you're, uh, how how can you not want to support that? So I think it's a failure of of engagement. Really, it's a it's yes. it's a failure of, of of understanding on the part of both politicians and um, and people uh, for a lot of the reasons we were talking about. So timescales, I mean, you know, it's it, it it needs to happen now, doesn't it? And 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 you yes. see actually if you see what's happening in the in the US now, you can see what a confident politician with a good climate narrative can do very quickly. Yes. And you know, this is why I go back to my slight frustration with with our current government here, because I feel like there's a strategy there for the taking and it's not going <laughs> to, you know, it's not going to solve things overnight. But if the Conservatives were to develop a strong climate narrative and some totemic policies, which made a difference on emissions and also were the kinds of things that people could support and cheer on, then it starts now. But the, the Committee on Climate Change says that the government's the, the problem is not with the government's policy and where it's trying to get to with these targets. It's it's what it's going to do. It's how it's going to get there. That's that's the bit that's largely yeah. vacant, isn't it? So it's we know where we where we're supposed to go because the Act, the Climate Change Act, and the all the budget carbon budgets and stuff tell us that. But it's really not clear how how we're going to get there um, at all yet. And that's that's the bit that's got to be improved. I mean, just it always helps to, to to make this more concrete, doesn't it? I mean, just we were talking about energy efficiency earlier. I mean, 
you know, it's wide open for the government to announce a, uh, you know, a yes, green yes. jobs army. Of course, of course. Um, and, and, and pump public money into training people yes. up and yeah. insulating people's houses and, you know, call it home improvement. <laughs> there are, you know, that's, that's, that strikes me as the kind of big, bold announcement which would, yes. you know, help them politically. It would cost yes. money, sure, but it would also save money and create jobs yeah. as, as as we all know so you know I, I think it's there for the taking I think um but I mean I'm it, sort of they? hoping that no and I'm, I'm hoping that they will that that when they maybe in the process of working out how they're going to meet these targets yes. they might then really start to engage the brain and and and, and see but on that very topic, Rishi Sunak has put, what is it, three billion into energy efficiency compared to the hundreds of billions he's yeah. put all, everywhere else in relation to it. And, and I, I have no sympathy for anyone who loses their job working for an airline or working in that industry. But we should be finding them another job. It's really not rocket science, is it? Get, get, as you said, get an army together run by local authorities locally to improve the energy efficiency of housing, which is one of the big areas of emissions that we need to address and we actually can do it technology is not an issue organization is not an issue it's just political will but they uh, the build back better really hasn't as far as i can see hasn't really gone as we'd attended would it really but um okay i've got a couple of just a couple of other things then um the first one is obviously we're all trying to do our bit i'm talking to you here today from a passive house which i built myself um, air source heat pump, no fossil fuels, um, solar panels in the garden, Tesla power battery in the garage, fully electric vehicle for the last nine years. Um, so I'm I, okay. You know, I, I, when I give talks, I say a lot of people listen to this because they want to do schemes that make money when we're talking about solar farms and stuff. But I actually do want to save the world. What about you? What what have what have you tried to do in your personal life to push all this? Okay, well, I'm sorry, but you've just played all the trump cards and there's none left for me. <laughs> I am actually next week buying a secondhand Nissan Leaf. Excellent. I've uh, had yeah, one yeah. of those. Um yeah, we could that would that would be another whole hour. Um <laughs> so I mean I you know, I I haven't flown for many years. Um we do a lot around diet. I talk to my kids incessantly about it. We now eat meat once a week because my sons cook once a week and one of them yeah. is really keen on meat. So we have <laughs> we have meat on his cooking night. Yeah. Um, and and I think it's really important. I mean, uh, you know, I, it, it's really important to um, to uh, make these changes in your own life. But yes. I I think you should be able to speak out regardless of that yes, and and I yes. think and 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 um I think as well as making these personal changes oh I might get you on this one Stephen uh, I think it's really <laughs> important to talk to your politicians as well so have you been to see your MP about climate change no I haven't oh no, there you go no, there you go no, no no it's a perfect answer though Rebecca it is because I was um uh, interviewing a journalist recently and I I said that what what have you done I said look I'm only 23 I live at home uh I, I haven't got a car at all therefore I can't get an electric one and, and whatever else but you know what I do I try and I try and talk to people 
people about yeah, it. I try and absolutely. educate them and enlighten really good them and stuff. And I thought, what a great answer. Because yeah. it's not just about spending money, is it? In in that sense, it's about it's about whatever is uh, is possible for you to do. And I'm sure your role with your your work and and books and so on is is very much in there. And and I suppose that my last question was really um, on a personal level as well, which is I've I've read extensively myself on climate change. I wrote a a book on how local authorities should um, undertake solar farm projects a couple of well five or six years ago now. And when I was dealing with the policy background in that book, I read all the different areas around it, including the books like Mark Liner, Six Six Degrees, and whatever else. And I found it quite depressing. I actually felt that it was bringing me down. The more I found out about it, the more you look at the uh, potential for global conflict over energy, water, mass migration, flooding of Bangladesh and all this. And and you're the only author I've actually read that actually describes this, what you call a heavy toll being taken on your psychological well-being and having to put that aside sometimes to, 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 to keep your mental health safe, if you like. So how, how do you actually achieve that? Well, it's work in progress. I mean, <laughs> I think, I mean, you know, really nice feedback I've had about the book is that it tackles the big subjects, but people didn't feel really miserable at the end of it. So yeah, I, agree. I, was, I, agree. I was, I was, I was, I was happy about that. I mean, I think, I, I do think compartmentalisation is really important and, um, you know, just taking time off. So I don't read climate fiction. <laughs> Um, I'll read books about anything except climate change. I keep climate to to, to the working day. I could actually imagine the opposite, where I was doing a day job focused on something completely different and I was, you know, doing climate activism in my spare time, but it can't take over your life. But I also think that the the most important thing for me is to, and I think for a lot of people, is to feel a sense of agency. So to actually feel like you are doing what you can. And um, my, um, my, a good friend Kate Rules who's a climate adventurer um she does long bike rides she says you should be tackling climate you should be tackling climate change in the way that makes you feel happiest and 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 and, and I really I really buy that um and I, I I think that you shouldn't you know you shouldn't get yourself down about it you should find ways of being you know of of you should definitely be acting on it because not acting is one of the things that that, that is yes. most problematic um but then you should be finding things to do which just fit your, yeah. your fit way you. of life horses and, and, for courses yes yeah yes. yeah yes, yeah and which make you feel happy yes i agree okay well rebecca it's been an absolute delight talking to you today about the cha- challenges of climate change i thank you for an interesting and thought-provoking contribution This podcast has been brought to you in association with Vortex IoT, a market leader in hyperlocal air quality monitoring and innovative clean tech solutions for smart cities. For further information, please visit www.vortexiot.com. Now, we've discussed some key issues in this podcast. If you have any comments on this episode or would like to make your voice heard, you can get in touch with us via email at hello at environmentjournal.online. And don't forget to subscribe through your podcast platform of your choice. It would be good to hear from you. So until next month's podcast, goodbye. Goodbye.